Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our guest today is Tom Zuba, and our topic is, What Do I Do Now? Dealing with Multiple Losses. Tom Zuba gives new meaning to the word resilience. His first major loss was in 1963 at the age of six with the death of his younger brother, Danny. In 1990, Tom was again to suffer loss with the sudden death of his 18-month-old daughter, Erin. Almost a decade later, in 1999, Tom was to suffer another blow with the sudden death of his wife, Trish, to a hereditary blood disease. Six years later, in 2005, another disaster would strike the Zuba family, the death of 13-year-old Rory. Undaunted, Tom and his remaining 12-year-old son, Sean, are learning day by day how to create a full, joy-filled life. Tom is an author, a motivational speaker, and a work- workshop facilitator who has appeared with author Gary Zukov on The Oprah Winfrey Show. Tom launched his website, www.tomzuba.com, on the first anniversary of his son Rory's death with the intention of creating sacred space where people can excavate grief, mourn safely, honor the gifts of denial, and consciously participate in their own transformation. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Tom, it's just great to have you on the show. I mean, uh, when you got in touch with me a few months ago, I was absolutely um, very struck by all the losses you've had and um, your energy and your idea that um, you and Sean, your remaining son, are learning to create a day-to-day life filled with joy. And there's so many people that, that need the message that you've gotten. I really want to bring them today to realize how a person that has gone through, and I want to understand myself, these horrendous number of losses. How, how have you done it? Talk about your losses and, and what you've done. Um, as Heidi said, my brother Danny died when I was six years old, a little boy really. And what I learned from that was that life went on and it was possible to live a full, happy life. One of the gifts both of my parents gave me was that Danny was still very, very much a part of our family. Um, We didn't have many pictures of him. In fact, I think just one or two. But I remember on occasion my mom would take that picture out. We would talk about him on his birthday. We would acknowledge the anniversary of his death. When people asked us how many kids were in our family, we would always say eight. So we we continue to have a relationship. Eight, with Danny. you had quite a, quite a large family. What a yeah, thing. yeah. There were eight of us. Well, and, and I'm, I'm struck. Parents. I've got to tell you, Tom, by the fact that your parents did this in an era where a lot of times people didn't continue these bonds with people that had died. I know. I know. That's an incredible, incredible, unique gift that my parents gave all of us. And and interestingly, when my daughter died, um, and she 19- was eight, that was Erin. She died at eighteen months old in nineteen ninety, right? Exactly. When she died, my wife Trish said, "We are going to celebrate her life." Erin mm-hmm. lived a full life, even though she died at eighteen months. We continued to have her pictures out. We would watch her videos. We would celebrate her birthday. 
And as our two sons were born and grew, again, Erin was very much a part of their family, even though they had never met her. Now, what did Erin die of? Um, She had something called hemolytic uremic syndrome. She was literally, she got a fever on a Friday morning. We took her to the hospital on Monday. Wednesday morning, she was diagnosed with this thing, uh, and Wednesday evening, she died. So it was very, very, very quick. And how about your younger brother, Danny, in 1963? You know, my da- my brother Danny had a hole in his heart uh, that no one detected, I think, probably until after he died. And it's something that today would have been um, picked up on the ultrasound mm. and, you know, corrected surgically before he was even born. Right. So, again, that was very, very sudden. In fact, he, he was baptized on Sunday, and he died that night. Wow. Oh, so you had... The sudden death in 1963 of your brother, and then again, you had a sudden death in 1990 of your. This was your only child then, 18 months yep, old. Then. Yes, our firstborn. And it's interesting because what Trish would say was, "This is every parent's nightmare," mm-hmm. and I would say, "It sure wasn't mine. I mean, it never occurred to me that one of my children could die, even though I was living with the death of my brother. It never occurred to me." Did did you uh, think about what your parents must have gone through at that time? Absolutely, absolutely. So so then, tell us what happened with Trish. Well, what what, what was really remarkable was that um, you know, like a lot of men, my mourning was very private and was very internal. And to be honest with you, I don't think it was very effective. And about three or four years after Aaron died, Trish said, I can't live with you anymore. You know, you are such an angry person. If you don't get mm-hmm. to see a therapist, I don't know if this marriage is going to survive. So I found a therapist, and I, you know, unearthed a lot of that anger and a lot of those feelings that I had repressed. But I will say that we got to a point where our son Rory was born uh, in in ninety one, and Sean was born in ninety five, and and at the time that Sean was born, I really was able to exhale, and I thought, we're normal again. We're I like that again. you were able to exhale, don't mm-hmm. you, Heidi? Yeah, yeah, and you felt like okay, we've got our we've got our it. new family again. We're cre- we've got a new normal. We're creating new memories. Yes, yes, and 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 it's like I had lived long enough without disasters occurring that I didn't fear for my son's life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had, I had established enough history where everything was going along nice and smoothly that I, I did. I thought, oh, thank God, you know, it's a new normal. So for a couple of years, it was me, Trish, Rory, and Sean, um, you know, going along really, really happy, really experiencing joy again. And then a couple of days after Christmas uh, of 98, Trish turned to me and she said, would you take my pulse? I think my heart is really, really racing. And I took her pulse really carefully, but I said, you know, I think everything's okay. In a matter of moments, it was clear to me that everything wasn't okay. Um, She was clutching her chest and, you know, screaming in pain, and I thought, "I, I cannot call 911. You know, if I call 911, then this is serious. Mm-hmm. But um, she kind of blacked out, and I wasn't sure if she was having a stroke or a seizure. 
I called 911. We went to the emergency room. And now, this is, this is, she'd never had any other problem. Absolutely she, not. She just had to take my pulse. And you weren't, you're not a doctor or anything. You're, were no. you in advertising or something? Uh, public relations. Public relations. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And she was uh, 40, but I knew it was serious. Right. And she was only 43 years old. Isn't that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. And so, like I said, 52 hours later after we arrived at the emergency room, she was dead. Oh, my goodness. That's unbelievable. That is incredible. I mean, how, how could you even cope with that? Now, what did she have? What did you finally find out? After she died, actually, the, um, the night of the visitation, her doctor came up and said, I found out what was going on with Trish. Do you want to know? And I said, no, not now. You know, now's mm-hmm. not the time. And he proceeded to tell me anyway. She had a, a hereditary blood disorder, a protein C deficiency, uh, which um, the blood around all of her internal organs clotted, uh, and that caused her, you know, really, really rapid death. Um, you had lost your brother in 1963, and your 18-month-old daughter Erin in 1990, and you had your two sons, and then again you had the sudden blow of the death of your wife, Trish, in, um, let me see, what year was that? Nin- was oh, 2005. Right. 99. I mean, 1999. Okay, we're not even getting into 2005 yet. And when we went to break, we left you at the hospital. Uh, Trish, you, you were home. Trish didn't feel well. She said, take my pulse. And she got worse and worse, and you called 911. She went into the hospital, and within how many hours was she dead? 52. 52 hours. 52 hours she was dead. There you are. Tell us where are you and what happened, and how did you cope? Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Um, how did I cope? I think I just completely withdrew. Um, I had a, a seven-year-old son and a three-year-old son. Wow. Um, my wife died on New Year's Day. So, that, so only uh, it's been what now we're at the third of January. So this has been an anniversary for you mm-hmm. too. Yes, yes. Uh, the first was the eighth anniversary of her death. And, not and, that long yeah, ago. It seems like about eighty years. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I had to go home that morning and tell Rory and Sean that their mommy mm-hmm. had died. And I remember putting Sean, who again was only three, on mm-hmm. my lap. Rory was standing to my right, and I told them that Mommy had died. And my little son, Sean, put both of his hands, one hand on each cheek, looked me directly in the eye and said, Daddy, well, then you're going to have to be our parent now. Uh, And that was the truth. That's um, powerful. Yeah, very, very powerful. For those first couple of weeks, I, I was living in Oak Park, Illinois, and I begged my mother to stay with me. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you I, if your mother, when when did your family get there? You had family support with that eight, what, you yes. had six siblings. Yes. I I, um, I knew for about 12 hours that, that Trish was going to die. Um, there was a last-minute procedure that uh, the doctor wanted to do and said to me, now you have to realize the inherent danger that there's a really good possibility that she could die during this procedure. But if we don't do the procedure, she's definitely going to die. Mm -hmm. So we did the procedure and the results were not what he had hoped they would be. 
So I looked at him and I said, so what do we do now? And he said, we call everyone that you know and you ask them to pray for a miracle because uh. there is nothing else we can do. So, it, you know, it was, a, it was a very slow 12-hour countdown. But, yeah, my, I was surrounded by my family, by Trisha's family. We called people that we knew were really good prayers, mm-hmm. and they came and that is, That's quite us. a wise doctor, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but for me, for me, that, that, those, you know, four, five, six, seven weeks were an incredibly dark time. Number one, it was a Midwestern winter, which is dark anyway. Right. But I used to just joke with my mom. I would, I would sit at the dining room table and I would say, the only thing I can do today is open and close my eyes. Uh-huh. That's, the, yeah. that's the only thing I was capable of doing. And, and that, that was, was the, the first truth. six or seven weeks after. Yes, yes. That makes and sense, Tom. Yeah, it does. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. That makes sense that that's all you could do. It was just so yes. painful and you'd been through so much that that was all you could handle at that point. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I, it was my second go-round. And mm-hmm. the first time, I didn't really know what to do. And, and the conventional wisdom out there was get back to work. You know, go back to work as soon as possible and just keep as busy as you possibly could. Mm-hmm. And, and Trish and I both did. So when Erin died, your 18-month-old daughter, you went back to to work. work. Yeah, probably two weeks after she died, we were back to work. And and you didn't have to take care of anybody else. So you guys could kind of grieve together, and you didn't have young children to take care of at that point because Erin had died. Yeah, but the way that I would word it is we didn't get to take care of anybody. I like that. You know, there was such a gaping hole in our life. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, my arms ached. Because I wanted to hold my baby girl. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that, it's it's that physical aching. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I I think it's kind of a fallacy that that we were, at least in my experience, to believe that we were able to support each other. I I don't really think we were. Mm-hmm. I think we were two really really broken people that um, needed to look outside of our marriage to find that support. Yeah, you really do have to bring in other support. I agree because um, one of the things is you grieve so differently. Exactly. I, I remember when, uh, for Phil and I, when he was up, I'd be down, and when he was down, I'd try to be up, and, you know, you're, you've just got your own rhythm. Right. And I remember, you know, like I said, three or four years later, I was in therapy, and eventually we brought Trish into the sessions, and one of the things Trish said to me is, Tom, you never cried. You know, I never saw you crying. And I said, honey, I would get up every morning before you and I would ride that exercise bike. And I would sob and sob and sob while riding the exercise bike. She never knew it, though. Mm -hmm. You cried in in private. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think it helped to have two small boys that you had to go on for and that you had to take care of? Not initially. I I just will be very, very honest. I, Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I, I resented the fact. Number one, I resented the fact that Trish left me alone with these two kids. Absolutely. And number two, I resented the fact that I, that I had to raise two kids. I even would go so far as to allow myself to think if I only had one, mm-hmm. it would be easier. So, no, it was a struggle for me for about a year and a half to two years in really resisting that life. It was very, very painful for me. But... um about two years after she died, 
I decided to move. And we moved from the Midwest to the Bay Area. I moved mm-hmm. to Walnut Creek, California. Very nice. Beautiful yeah, weather. That, that, that was huge for me. Um, but it was very, very healing. And that really was the beginning of, I would say, the healing process for the three of us in, in a real concrete way. Mm-hmm. Now, did you, did you um, think it was good that you didn't go back to work or bad or you made a point about that? Because, you, you know, know what? Uh, with first yeah. loss you felt that you needed to go back to work immediately and that's what I did too. But is that a good thing? Um, my work at the time that my wife died was that Trish and I had our own home-based business. Mm. So not only did I lose my wife, the mother of my kids, my best friend, but I lost my business partner and I shut down our business Mm. because I just didn't see how I would be able to devote the time and energy that I wanted to devote to my two kids Mm-hmm. And work full time. So, to and, and we saw that I I work with uh, families that lost firefighters in the World Trade Center, and the the women that were working, most of them, I'd say ninety five percent, stopped working for the same reason you did. They felt like their kids really needed them now that they only had one parent. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought, what would the alternative be? The alternative would be to hire a strange lady to come in and essentially raise my kids. Mm -hmm. That made absolutely no sense to me. Especially after everything they had been through. That would be just another loss. Yeah. What kind of a home-based business were you doing? It was public relations and marketing. Uh And and we were living in the Chicago suburbs, so, you know, uh, our our clients were downtown Chicago. Uh And so then you moved. Did you take the business up again when you moved to California? I didn't. I didn't. I'll put a... A plug-in. I uh, just a couple of months before Trish died, we had decided to have another baby. Mm-hmm. Trish really, really wanted to have a girl, mm-hmm. and um, because we had a home-based business, I thought if we're going to have a third child, um, we really need to get our act together. So I looked into life insurance, and. Um, Really, I think through the grace of God, just a couple of weeks. Actually, it was it was a long enough grace period before Trish died that that I purchased a, an enormous life insurance policy on her life. Wow! And, and I and I have to tell you, kind of intuitively knowing that at some point I would cash that in. So mm-hmm. when she died, I had enough money that I didn't have to go back to work right. full time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't. Mm-hmm. And so you so were no able one. to do that with the kids. And, exactly. And you moved exactly. to Walnut Creek. And then talk again about what happened six years later in 2005. Well, it's interesting because I stayed in Walnut Creek for two years. And as I mm-hmm. said, it was incredibly, incredibly healing. But again, intuitively, I knew it was time to move back to the Midwest. So I did what I thought I would never, ever do, and that was I moved back to my hometown of Rockford, Illinois. Uh-huh. My parents are still alive. My um, six siblings are within 15 minutes of me, so I'm surrounded by family. And again, we were here for about two years, and I got to that place that I was when Sean was born, where I exhaled again, and I thought, oh, my goodness, I've done it again. You know, I've, I've rebuilt my life. And, and how many I, years I, was this after your, your, do- your wife died? How many years? Five years. 
Five years later, you were able to exhale and say, okay, I'm seeing joy and I'm rebuilding my life again. Yes. My, okay. Both of my kids were stable in school and happy. And, in fact, I had, I had uh, that the end of that summer, I had enrolled in a couple of adult ed classes, a watercolor class, a yoga class, a chanting class. You know, wow, and it was like, this is going to be about me now. Right. And my son, Rory, who was 13, went to seventh grade for two days. And in the middle of the night, I uh, had a massive, massive seizure. Uh. And I, it was very similar to the experience I had with Trish because I thought, I cannot call 911. If mm-hmm. I call 911, then this is serious. And there I was calling 911, taking the ambulance. This is the third family member I had taken an ambulance ride with. You know, we went to the emergency room. He stayed in the hospital for about five days and unfortunately was misdiagnosed for about two months. Wow. Um, but finally, in November, uh, a, a biopsy turned into major brain surgery, and he was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, which there is no cure for. So and, and that's a brain no, tumor? It's a brain tumor, yeah. Wow, that's a awful. very, very aggressive. Yeah, uh, not encapsulated. Yeah. No, uh, very no. Yeah. Right. So that was November, and I was told that without treatment, he would be dead in six months. And with treatment, he would be lucky to live 12 months. So I decided to forego conventional treatment and um, just really went for every alternative treatment I could get my hands on. And he died three months later. He died on February 22nd. Wow, that's awful. Unbelievable, Tom. Talk a little bit about your experience with Sean. What, what, what was his experience? Uh, did he have any... Uh, I know sometimes when kids have had the kind of loss of the mother and now this kind of experience, they're quite unusual. Oh, did, both, both? The kids themselves? Yeah. Sean, I mean, sometimes we yeah. find that they're more mature, they're more empathic, they're more resilient. They have all these other things, that these gifts that they have... They're just it, I, because they've been through so much more than most children. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because one of the things I observed when Rory was alive that Sean and Rory kind of created their own family of two. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was as if, yes, I was part of their family. You know, we were a family of three. But the two of them shared something that I didn't share, and that was mm-hmm. the loss of their mother. Mm-hmm. So Rory, um, I, I often said that Rory and I were almost kind of co-parents of Sean. Mm-hmm. So when, when, when Rory died, um, oh, it was enormous for Sean. I mean, Sean, you know, immediately said to me, oh, Daddy, um, Christmas Eve is going to be Horrible. Mm. Um, my kids aren't going to have any cousins. Mm. Uh, but then he he kind of went into a I'm fine, I'm fine. Right. Um, a couple months later, he started sleeping in bed with me. He wasn't able to go over to friends or cousins' house for a sleepover, and. A couple months later, he said, Dad, can you help me find a therapist? You know, I'd really wow, like Wow, that's to, pretty amazing. Yeah, 
Because at I'd that really point like he was 10 years old, right? 12, uh, yes. Yeah, 10. Oh, wow. Yeah, he said, I'd really like to see someone because I want to be able to sleep in my own bed again. <laughs> and I want to be able to sleep at, at the cousin's house and go to sleepovers at my friend's house. Right. So yeah, he is wise beyond his years. Mm-hmm. So so his uh, this extended family that you've moved by have really been, you know, a huge important part. How about religion? Have you have you had a religious bent with the family? Or uh, I, I was I was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. um, and and I consider myself an incredibly incredibly spiritual person. Mm-hmm. And one of the things uh, that I did in trying to make peace with my daughter Erin's death was to ask what I consider some of life's most fundamental questions. And through answering those questions, I I, I honestly kind of moved away from my Catholic upbringing and immersed myself in in a much more, um, I would say, just broad-based spiritual existence and belief. I remember just days after our daughter Erin died, uh, a, a friend of ours, a priest, said, Tom, are you mad at God? Are you angry at God? And I thought for a minute and I said, absolutely not. I don't really think God had anything to do with Erin's death. I said, in fact, the closest that I ever got to God was through my daughter Erin. So no, I'm not angry at God. But then I remember uh, probably a week after Aaron died, Trish and I went up to a resort area. It was the middle of the summer. I remember uh, a dark night, a full moon, and just gazing up at that moon and thinking, you know, where are you, Aaron? Where are you? Where could you possibly be? Because it felt like something had just snatched her from us. You know, she was there one day and she was gone the next. So as I said earlier, I I asked what I think are, you know, some of life's fundamental questions. Number one, is there a God? Mm-hmm. And number two, if there is a God, what what is he, she, or it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what did he, she, or it have to do with the death of my daughter and then the death of my wife and the death of my son? I also, you know, asked, do these people live on? You know, is there a, quote, heaven? And if there is, you know, where is it? Right. And it took me many, many, many years. And, and I am, I'm, I'm always open to kind of, you know, revising and reshaping the beliefs that I hold because my goal is to have peace. So I want, I want to make sure that the belief that I'm holding on to is not causing me incredible pain but is bringing me peace. And, you know, one of the things that, again, it was was a gift of Rory's death. I tried everything. I flew him to Seattle to see a doctor. I flew him to Texas to see a doctor. I did massage, acupuncture, Reiki. We had ashes from India, water from Lourdes, water from Medjugorje. We chanted, we drummed, we burned sage. I mean, everything I could possibly think of, mm-hmm. and Rory died anyway. So the belief that I hold is that it is impossible for someone to die at the wrong time or in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And that's an incredibly challenging belief, but it's a belief that brings incredible peace. So It reminds me a little bit of the work with Byron Katie. 
I, yes, I don't. I love uh, she's I, been on the show, and I think she would pretty much agree with that statement. Yeah, yeah I, I think I, you know. I think Katie would come. To, you know, you sound like you've come to terms with her idea that you live in reality. Yeah, and, and have, you, have you made peace at this point with all these losses? Would you say that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, that doesn't mean that, that they still don't cause me pain, but absolutely there were no mistakes. No one died at the wrong time. No one died in the wrong way. Tom, is there ever, to... was there ever a time, though, that you said, wait a minute, Aaron, Trish, Rory, Danny, all these deaths, this is awful, this is ridiculous, this wasn't supposed to happen, why the hell does all, do all these people keep dying on me? Um, after Trish, after Aaron died, I very, very seriously contemplated suicide, very seriously. And after Trish died, um, I toyed with the idea of suicide. Uh, you know, it, it would have been a way to um, get away from the incredible pain, the, you know, the nonstop constant pain. But I really feel like I had made peace before Rory died. So mm-hmm. Rory's death to me was so extraordinarily unbelievable mm-hmm. that um, I, I really never questioned it. You know, I, I, like I said, I, I, I hold on to belief that this incredible child died at the right time in the right way. Nothing else is possible. And do you so think I, I, that you know, was because it was he died from a terminal illness, or do you think that was because prior losses prepared you for his death? Um, prior losses had um, had allowed me to hold on to a set of beliefs, number one. But number two, like I said, I was given that gift of trying everything. I mean, I tried everything. Mm-hmm. So I, I have no guilt about his death. You know, I, I'm not living with, oh, if only I had done this or if only I had done this. I, but e- but I... even if you were living with, even if you had things like that, I have a feeling that you would resolve it mm-hmm. by saying, you know, it is what it is. It's too painful for me not to. Yeah, because I'm... we've got all that audience out there right now who are saying, but, but, what if, but, you know, and you're saying to them, stop it. I, I, I'm stop saying... it. It's too painful. I'm saying there's another way to look at it, mm-hmm. that, that, that actually the pain serves a purpose. It's like when the pain is, when, when I had enough pain, I looked for a way out. I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll share something else. When Aaron died, I wasn't convinced there was a light at the end of the tunnel. I really, really wasn't. But when Trish died, what made a difference for me is I knew indeed there was a light at the end of the tunnel because I had survived it once. Mm-hmm. And when Rory died, the tunnel itself was lit. So wow. this third experience was very, very different for me. I, you know, I, I consciously participated in my own transformation. You know, I set the intention that I was going to heal. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a beautiful picture because we know I there are people it. out there that are afraid. They've, they've had one loss. They're afraid to have another one. We know we have a whole society that's afraid of even losing one. Right. Because right. there's so little dialogue around grief and loss, and, and by many people, a lack of support. People are afraid to even talk about it. Absolutely. I, I, we are so ill-prepared and ill-equipped to deal with death, and if we live long enough, we're all going to experience it. Right. Yeah, it's so isolating and frightening. Yeah, I love the visual image of the tunnel being lit. 
Yes, the tunnel was lit for me. And you're really celebrating everyone's life, not their death. And I'm looking for the gifts. What are the gifts of these deaths? They're, mm-hmm. they're, I, I have received incredible gifts. Another gift that Rory gave me is I knew I loved this kid. I had no idea I was capable of loving as much as I am. And the only way I learned that is through his death. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, 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 I no longer use the term moving on. I, I, I'm not interested in moving on, but I am interested in moving with. You know, I want to learn how to move with Rory's stuff and move with Trisha's stuff and move with Aaron's stuff. And, and that means taking them along with you is what you're saying. They're, they're, tell me more about what that means. Well, I believe with. that we will always have a relationship with people okay. that we know that have died. Yeah. And we get to decide, is that going to be a healthy relationship or is that going to be an unhealthy relationship? Mm-hmm. And I think just very unconsciously and innocently, Many of us create really, really unhealthy relationships with the people that we knew that died. We, we primarily keep them in a little box. Mm-hmm. That's not that you know that doesn't bring me peace, and that doesn't feel healthy to me. And when we think about them, it's it's often with pain and sadness, and we don't think about them in any other way, especially initially when we're in really serious grief. Absolutely. I love the fact the idea that it's active that we continue to create relationships with them. Mm-hmm. A wonderful well, and, and, and for me, it goes, it goes to the point, do I believe that there's, a, that there's a part of each human being that's eternal? And I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do. And, and, and my dead people, you know, have showed me in many, many ways that, that we, we are still in relationship. We could just, I think, go on for another couple of hours with you. Uh, you're mm-hmm. an amazing person. And I wanted to, one of the things I wanted to talk to you a little bit about is some of the things you have on your website. And I would suggest that people definitely go to your site, www.tomzuba.com. And it will also be on our website because Tom talks about creating space that people can excavate grief, mourn safely, and honor the gifts of denial and consciously participate in their own transformation. Tom, talk about honoring the gift of denial. You know, I used to be embarrassed and ashamed when people suggested that perhaps I was in denial. Um, I really saw it as a weakness. And then a couple of uh, months, actually, after Rory died, I heard a speaker, a guy by the name of Ken Moses, who's a psychologist in Evanston, Illinois, and he talked about three gifts of denial. He said that first... Denial buys us time to put together the external supports we need to face our shattered dreams. And second, it buys us time to find the internal strength that we'll need to move forward. And third, it really gradually eases us into the reality that our new life, at least initially, is actually very painful and difficult. I really, really like that. Yeah. Um, so, so I spent time trying to figure out how do I put together an external network of support? You know, who is going to be there for me? And then I tried to ask the question, you know, what, what am I made of? What do I have inside of me that, that I can rely on? Do I have the internal strength to take another step forward? 
So I love denial now. Yes, I need <laughs> denial. You know, I, it's, I'm, it's I'm, a healthy coping mechanism. Like you said, Tom, we don't want to be so overwhelmed by grief that we end up in a fetal position. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or, you know, even if we do end up in a fetal position for a while, I think, I think that's okay. But, right. um, yeah, ab- absolutely. I think, you know, you know, having walked this walk three times, mm-hmm. I think if the reality of what happened to us, if, if the enormity of the death, if we were able to feel that all at once, I think we might explode. Uh-huh. I think it's just too much for us to handle. So thank God that, that you know, we experience denial. And until, our body until, protects us. Yes, until we don't have to anymore. But I also think it gives people who are family members or a friend an opportunity to say, you know, I think my sister is really in denial. Perhaps I could step up to the plate and assure her that I am part of her external network of support. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice because then the idea is also it gives people an opportunity for service. Yes, yes. Which like, is, I think is very I... basic to the human condition is that we need to serve each other. Absolutely. How can, I, how can I accompany this person through their loss? How can I accompany them? And we have to be careful about not judging people when we think they're in denial. I remember when my brother died... A friend of mine who didn't know him very well cried hysterically at the funeral, and afterwards she said, well, I cried far more than you did. And I thought, yes, because I couldn't get in touch with that emotion because I was afraid that I would, like you said, explode. Right. I've heard from so many people, if I start crying, I'm afraid I will never stop. Exactly. Well, Tom, before we close the show, I want to ask you if you had a piece of advice for someone right now who is suffering um, who, uh, what would it be, who's, who's had multiple loss or who's afraid of having another loss? Or who doesn't know how they're going to survive. Right, exactly. Yeah. I, I think that the truth of the matter is that we are each our best teacher. You know, I know what I need. And, and the truth of the matter is I'm the only person that knows what I need. So I would say try to really, really trust your intuition. Be really gentle with yourself Take really, really good care of yourself. Um, and a lot of the times, the best thing we can do is just hold on. You know, hold on, hold on, hold on. And, and, and believe that things will get better. But it's, it, it, it's a, it's a moment by moment. It's a minute by minute. Mm-hmm. It's an hour by hour. But just, just hold on. So have hope. Absolutely. Have hope. And, Reach out to others and, so that you don't feel alone. Mm-hmm. I, I, so many times I've heard people say, well, what works best for me is to keep busy. You know, I'm keeping busy. And while I can understand that, I would say, are you able to take five minutes during the day to be with yourself, you know, mm-hmm. to try to feel what is what your feelings are, what emotions are running through you. You know, can, can you try to um, connect with your life? Because I think that that's a way that we can heal. Mm-hmm. Well, Tom Zuba, it's time to close our show now, and I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Um, you're an incredibly amazing person, and I look forward to having you be part of our community. 